Welcome to Thoughts on Record, official podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Each episode, we explore topics of interest to clinicians and mental health consumers from a cognitive behavioral perspective. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Brad Baluchian, PhD, is a freelance science journalist and has published over 100 articles in National Geographic, Discover, Rolling Stone, and several other publications. His first book, The Wax Pack, reached number seven on the Los Angeles Times bestseller list and was named one of NPR's best books of the year for 2020. He has a bachelor's degree in island biogeography from Duke University and a PhD in entomology from UC Berkeley. In addition to teaching at Merritt College in Oakland, California, Brad is the developer and director of Merritt College's Natural History and Sustainability Program. All right, Dr. Brad Balukjian, welcome to Thoughts on Record. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Pete. Thanks for having me. You are very welcome. Uh, Brad, it is so nice to have you on the podcast today. I really, really enjoyed your book, The Wax Pack. And uh, by the way, I have to give a shout out to my dad here, a frequent podcast listener and perhaps the world's biggest uh, Dodgers fan. He was the one that actually passed the book along to me, and he really loved the book as well as really appreciated the chapter on Steve Yeager, and we may end up talking about that a bit later. Uh, you know, certainly we'll get to fully describing what the Wax Pack is all about shortly, but I thought the concept behind the book was so creative and, and so original. I also loved how personal the book was and the real vulnerability that you brought to the table. It made for a really, really very endearing and engaging read, and in fact, uh, I, I think I read it in less than 48 hours. It was sort of a the proverbial page turner. And finally, your, your reference to your own journey with obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, you know, you reference that quite a bit in the book and which added really just another interesting layer, particularly for me as a psychologist. So all this to say, I'm really looking forward to chatting with you about a whole bunch of stuff. There is uh, so many bases to cover, uh, pun totally intended. <laughs> it's interesting that um, saying it out, obsessive compulsive disorder. We should we should do that more often because everyone just says OCD all the time. But it's kind of a, a nice reminder of what it is when you when you say all say the word out. Um, and uh, no, thank you for that intro. And you know, I tell people the if I had to summarize what my book is about, it's that one word vulnerability. More than baseball, um, you know some. Even some people may be disappointed if they're hardcore baseball fans that it's really not a book that goes and, you know, relives all those baseball heroics, but it, it focuses a lot more on the the players as people and and my own story, like you said, and, and there's a lot in there. I, I say the book is as much self-help and, uh, and uh, travel and memoir as it is baseball. Oh, for sure. I think that's a really fair statement. Uh, there's a lot of humanity in there. And uh, that's something I'll ask you probably about a little bit later about why you chose to bring in yourself into the book in, in the most like authentic of ways rather than just keeping it sort of like a a baseball book. Uh, before we get there, I, I just wanted to ask you about something uh, considering we might be of the same vintage. I was just kind of uh, getting the stuff ready before we went on the air today. I was on YouTube looking at the Kirk Gibson home run from uh, from 1988, and uh, I don't care if, if you're a baseball fan or not. That is, it's like it's like a sports movie come to life. Uh, the injured guy hobbles onto the field in the ninth inning. He's up against like the ace closer and hits the game winning home run. Uh, I, I think it was game one of the World Series, was it not? Yeah, and I've always thought that something that doesn't get talked about enough about that is that that was game one off Dennis Eckersley, 
And <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> the thing is they never used him again. Like, you know, they never, like, they didn't try to trot him back out there in another moment like that. It's like almost like, you know, it's so, it's so Hollywood, but it's, it's, it's true that they had that moment and then they, they said, okay, that's, you know, you look at his stat line for that world series, one at bat, one hit, one home run, one RBI. And that's how badly hurt he was too. Was it his knee? I can't remember. It's so I think it was a hamstring. Hamstring, that's right. I mean, he could barely sort of – I think he had hit a foul ball. He could barely – he started to run down to first base. He could barely move, basically. That's right, yeah. Yeah, that was an, an, a truly iconic, you know, arguably the most iconic moment in, in baseball history, you could say, or one of the, you know. No, absolutely. And again, whether you're a sports fan or not, it's worth hopping on YouTube and uh, and having a look at that clip. It's really quite emotional, actually. See the crowd going, and I think Vin Scully calls that, and he does a great job of just stepping back and letting the crowd kind of do the uh, do the talking. It's it's really cool. So, I mean, Brad, there's so many places we could begin, but I guess just for a bit of context, uh, you've written for National Geographic, Discover, Rolling Stone, among others. How did you get into writing uh, in the first place? Well, I. I think discovered in in high school that I really enjoyed <clears throat> journalism, and I, I enjoyed, I, I you know I always I never I never was interested in writing fiction. I've always just loved writing nonfiction, and but I've always uh, liked the challenge of telling a story that you know is true, and using the techniques of fiction to make a true story more engaging or engrossing. And so when I was in college, I took a class in magazine journalism where we really studied a lot of the uh, classic works in the from the 60s and the, the movement they called the new journalism with people like Tom Wolfe and Hunter S. Thompson. And um, that was the kind of writing that I wanted to do, that, that sort of narrative nonfiction. And um, I always loved magazines because magazines were kind of the the place where that stuff got published. You know, now it, magazines are not what they used to be. But after college, I actually went and worked at a magazine for a few years, uh, a travel magazine called Islands, and really got to cut my teeth and see how a magazine works, and get you know got a lot of great experience. And then I went back and, and got my PhD and because I've always loved both science and journalism. And so I've kind of my whole career toggled back and forth and ultimately decided to do both. And so now I, I teach uh, biology, but I also am a freelance writer. And this book, The Wax Pack, was my first book. And it was really I was really excited because finally, for the first time in my career, I had the space to actually try to do the kind of writing that I always wanted to do. You know, I'd always written lots of short articles, but in a short article, you, you don't have the, the space to really flex those creative muscles about, uh, a, you know, technique and, and get into all the, the, the fun of, of that kind of long form storytelling. So all of a sudden I had, you know, 300 pages to work with and it was, it was, a a wonderful challenge to get to do that kind of writing. 
I'm always really fascinated by the idiosyncrasies of the creative process and creativity is something we've talked a lot about on the podcast. Is there a general sort of stance that you have towards your creative process? Does it differ for something short versus a longer project like this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think there's definitely a difference. I mean, on a short article, it's more it's more the mechanics. I think you might get a little bit of, you know, flair in there here and there, but you can't really establish much of a voice in a short article, but in a long piece or a book, you know, you can definitely have that voice. And for me, um, it's interesting the way that my creativity intersects with my thought process or my, even my, you know, to get into the OCD a little bit. Um, I th- I've noticed that I'm, I'm at my creative best when I'm able to create space in my head um, in terms of sort of the, the thought, like the, the thoughts that go through my head. We all, we all are used to kind of a, a constant hum of thoughts that go through our head. And when, you, when you're struggling with something like OCD, you know, those thoughts get really sticky. You know, I, I love that analogy <clears throat> with OCD of, of thoughts being stickier than they are for someone that doesn't have OCD. And, you know, those of us with OCD know that when you're in the, in the throes of it, your, your thoughts are just so sticky and you're, and then you do these compulsions to try to unstick. And the more you try to do that, the more sticky they get. And, you know, it's like, if you think of a thought as being like a post-it, you know, your brain is just covered in post-its before too long because um, you're just in that vicious cycle. So I've noticed that um, when I am able to, you know, use the techniques that I know in cognitive behavioral therapy to unstick, um, it opens up a lot of space for my creative process. And I think that coupled with kind of some of the things you were alluding to, like being in nature for me, like, you know, going on long nature walks, being outside, those things tend to uh, spark my creativity. And I've just noticed that to me, creative thoughts, the creative process, like it it really is this just a moment of inspiration. I mean, there's no logic. It just, it just emerges into your consciousness. And I think the ability for those things that created creativity to emerge is, is greater when you're putting yourself in a situation where, um, again, you're, you're in nature or you're in open space and you're, you know, you're, you're managing your own thoughts productively. Yeah. It's not the kind of thing that you, you can sit down and say, Hey, I'm going to write a hit song now, or I'm going to write an amazing book. I think it has to kind of come to you. You kind of download it uh, by putting yourself in the right headspace. Uh, this might actually be a good time to talk about maybe the origin story for the book for, for those who haven't read it. And again, I highly recommend that people do. Can you describe the idea behind the book, what you were trying to accomplish uh, in, in writing it? How did you come up with the idea and, and how did you sort of give birth to it and, and how much planning went into it? Well, the premise is pretty simple. The idea was to take a pack of baseball cards from 1986, which is the first year that I collected them, and get a pack that had never been opened. And whatever random players happened to be in that pack, structure a book around those players. And what I liked about the pack was that it, it kind of captured that that excitement you used to get as a kid of not knowing who you were going to get and the randomness of whoever's in that pack, you know, that's, 
that's the hand of cards. You're I mean, literally the hand you're dealt and now you've got to play them. Um, so the premise is, I mean, I think most, pretty much everyone, even people that, that don't like the book think the idea is great. I mean, just the idea of, you know, basing a book off of this pack of cards. The next challenge was how do I do that? Because there's many different wax pack books you could write with this premise. And that's something that evolved a little bit, you know, in the very beginning, I was thinking, well, maybe I'll write about the 1986 season through the varying perspectives of these different players. Uh, and I'll, you know, then kind of flash forward to the present. And I, you know, I played with different ideas, but the more I got into it, the more I felt like, um, the best, the book that I wanted to write the most was one that would, um, have me involved as a character. And the reason why is because I felt like, I mean, I, I knew I was going to go track all these guys down. Right. So, so the book became a quest book. It was a, in search of, I know I'm now going to get in the car and drive 11,000 miles to find all these guys and, and 30 years later and tell the story of what happened to them. I mean, that, I all, uh, that was something I always wanted to do. I didn't want to write a book from calling people on the phone or just doing internet research. I wanted to have like first person experiences. I wanted to, you know, know what they looked like and describe them and, you know, in, <clears throat> just try to capture the, environment of wherever I found them. Um, so then the next question was, well, why, how much of myself do I put in there? And I chose to put a fair amount of myself because I felt like the book needed, a, a, the, the reader needed a guide to kind of tie it all together. Because if it was just 14 individual stories of these players in a pack, there, to me, there was no through line that would be obvious. So there would be there, you know, there needed to be some um, bridge overarching narrative arc that would pull all these guys together. And I felt like my character was the best chance at providing that. And that if I could get the reader to emotionally invest in me as a character, then they would stick with me, you know, going from player to player. Yeah, that's really cool. And now that you mention it, it's absolutely such a great strategy because you can really see each, like you're the constant and then each of the players that you're meeting are a point of contrast relative to you, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you get to see, it, I think it provides a better shaping or, or maybe ability to see into uh, the perspective of these different players that you met. That, that's, that's a really neat angle on it. Um, as we talked about just a few minutes ago, it is such a personal book. And you mentioned that vulnerability is kind of a, a key theme there. Besides the sort of technical angle around that, was there sort of a personal, I don't want to say self-help necessarily, but how much were you writing the book for yourself from that perspective? Yeah. I mean, I had always, I think I've always someone that's worked on myself a lot. I mean, I've been through a lot of therapy. I, I do a lot of self-improvement. So I don't, I don't think I wrote the book trying to sort of fix myself, but I think I realized that my own story and my own process could, could be relevant and interesting to the reader where there was some overlap between the things that I went through and the things that I was encountering from the players. So um, talking about OCD, I decided to include that Number one, because I actually went to LA, which is where I lived when I went through my OCD therapy. 
And so just being there, you know, brought back those memories. And, but also um, because OCD really is just an anxiety disorder. And so there, you know, that there's a, there's a, there's many flavors of fear or many flavors of anxiety that exist, but anxiety is anxiety. Fear is fear, right? Whether it's OCD or it's some other, other type. And, uh, you know, baseball players, one of the things that they, I noticed that they were encountering both as players and after playing was how they manage fear because, um, there's an incredible amount of fear and anxiety in when it comes to, you know, playing professional sports, you know, how do you, how do you manage that? How do you respond to that? And then there was an incredible amount of uncertainty when they all were, when they were the same age that I was, when I took the trip in my mid thirties and they retired from playing baseball and had the rest of their lives ahead of them with no, generally no backup plan. So, you know, falling off a cliff basically at 35, uh, I was interested in how they dealt and how they coped with that uncertainty. Um, and, and just seeing some of the parallels between how you manage fear, whether you, whether it's OCD or it's you're done playing baseball or, you know, any of these ways that fear manifests. Well, let's just dig in on the OCD for a little bit. And, and again, you reference it really early. I, I was peeking through the book today and I think it, it may show up as early as, you know, page three, or it's very, very early on in the book. How old were you when you first experienced symptoms of OCD? Well, it's funny. I've been, do, I've been doing a lot of thinking back to that because um, I've gotten a little bit involved with the International OCD Foundation and hoping to do a presentation at the online conference this fall and have talked to some of their national advocates because a part of my, also my motivation for including my OCD story in the book was just to increase awareness. And, you know, if there are people out there and I have had many people who have written to me, you know, saying, thank you for talking about this publicly because, you know, I am going through this or whatever. Um, so I've been going back and I, I went back and I found a bunch of the, the old, um, imaginal exposure scripts that I wrote when I was going through my cognitive behavioral therapy and, um, and, and thinking back to when I could first remember. And I, you know, there are things from in my, early childhood, maybe age, you know, seven or eight that I could, I can think back now and realize that was my OCD, but I, it wasn't, a, it wasn't disruptive and it wasn't really a problem for me until I was in college. So, um, but you know, the, the, some of the signs were there early on. And when things started to kind of percolate in college, what were the kind of challenges that were coming up for you? What were the intrusive thoughts, the compulsions that were most problematic for you? Yeah, I had a, a nice little uh, uh, smorgasbord of, of OCD types. Um, one was, I remember being a freshman in college and I was a really diligent student. I would go to the library every night just to do my homework and to study after dinner. And I remember that whole first semester, I was like, I'd be sitting there in this in the study carol and I would have to like, adjust my, my pants or I'd have to, you know, like I had these weird little, what I now realize are kind of somatic OCD compulsions of, um, or, you know, if I had like a hangnail, like the hangnail would become like, I would, you know, kind of obsess over kind of picking at it, or I couldn't, I couldn't be, couldn't focus until I had dealt with the hangnail or ripped it off or, you know, 
So it was some of that. And then it was also, um, uh, a lot of pure O OCD mental compulsions where, uh, being, you know, terrified that I had contracted HIV from, you know, kissing a girl or something that, you know, really there was very little risk. And then going through all these mental gymnastics of an internet research and trying to convince myself that, you know, no, I don't have any, there's no danger there. But of course, all of those mental compulsions just making it worse. And, um, and I didn't really know, like, I was like, what, you know, why is this so, I mean, I knew that this was irrational to be doing all these things, but I couldn't stop myself from doing it. And uh, I went to the university uh, counseling center and luckily I had met with a, a therapist um, who, who recognized it as OCD, but didn't really know how to treat in a, in using cognitive behavioral therapy or, you know, ERP. So it wasn't really until a few years later, which I think I talked about in the book when I was in Los Angeles, where I really, my OCD really started kicking my ass. And that's when I got the, the really good treatment that I, that I needed. And what was the treatment? Well, you I mean, you talk about it in the book, you mentioned uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and in particular uh, exposure response prevention or ERP as people will often hear it referred to. You mentioned that that was sort of the, the, the ticket towards sort of true recovery from OCD. Is that correct? Yeah, because I was in 2005, I was living in LA, you know, and I think stress in life makes your OCD worse and exacerbates it. So I was in a particularly tough spot because I had tried to write this book about this wrestler and that completely fell apart. So I was looking for a job and I was living with my girlfriend who, um, you know, I, I was not a, not a picnic to live with at that point. And then for the first time I experienced depression and kind of panic attacks. And so it was, you know, there was no quality of life there. And so I luckily found uh, Tom Corboy at the OCD Center of Los Angeles and started going to see him. And he, you know, I remember the first day I went there, I really appreciated, you know, because I had seen a couple therapists over the years that really didn't know what they were doing. Like I had one that told me whenever I started to have an intrusive thought to like, you know, imagine a giant stop sign or, take a rubber band and, and flick my, my wrist with it, you know, and, and that's like the worst thing you can do. Yeah. It's like the, literally the exact opposite of what you should do. Right. The, the, the that thought suppression doesn't work. And, um, so my, when my therapist, uh, I remember the first day he said, you know, we're going to treat this like a class. This is not, I'm not going to go into your childhood. I don't really care like what causes your, thoughts to be what they are. You know, this is, this is not Freudian psychotherapy. This is like, here's, he gave me like a binder. He's like, we're going to do this stuff. And before too long, I was, um, you know, having to listen to audio tapes that I recorded of my, my self reading my worst case scenario. And I would listen to that on a loop for, you know, hours a day. <clears throat> and, um, and then, you know, have that exposure to the anxiety provoking thought and then not engage in a compulsion to, you know, try to reassure myself. So, you know, that coupled with medication, um, taking uh, Celexa was really where I turned the corner. OCD is one of those uh, challenges where you can see such dramatic turnarounds 
if the client is really, really invested in the exposure treatment and uh, you may, I think you make a good point there. The dose is so important too. So when we have clients come in, sometimes we want them to come in and have like four, four to six hours a week of intensive therapy, ERP, coached exposures to really, really just try and get that data in. And one thing that seems to need to happen in OCD is that notion of overcorrection, right? For instance, if someone has, and this is certainly more a little bit more for the listener than for you, I'm obviously preaching to the choir, but um, you know, if someone has a contamination fear, we have to put food on the toilet seat and we eat it off the toilet seat. And that's not because we ever have to get used to that in real life, but we have to overcorrect in order to really send that message home to the brain about the apparent danger of these things. I think it's hard to know sometimes, you know, how you scaffold that. And, you know, I know for me, like I had tried the, the ERP without medication and it wasn't really working. And it wasn't really until I did both that uh, <clears throat> I felt like I could really um, engage in what I needed to do with the, the exposure therapy. No, that's a great point. And there's good data on that, right? Like often the best result is medication plus the CBT. And typically the medication needs to be at a, almost a typically a very high dose relative to what it would be typically prescribed for garden variety anxiety or, or depression usually. So yeah, medication absolutely has its role in the facilitating psychotherapy for sure. Yeah. Yeah. One bit of neuroscience I'll sprinkle in again, just for the uh, listener. I had learned this on another podcast with the no CD expert we had on. Imagine you have a rabbit. It's sitting on the edge of a field and it's about to go into a carrot patch and it, it will freeze and wait and watch to see if there's any danger. And at some point the brain will arbitrarily say, okay, we're good to go. You can, you can go out. But it seems to be that with OCD, that circuit never closes. The brain never gets that arbitrary sort of, nope, you're good now. You can stop washing your hands. Your hands are clean or whatever. So that, so the, the preparatory avoidance just go, runs on a loop over and over and over again. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I think the genetics and the sort of the physiology behind it all is is very interesting and in trying to figure out. I mean, I guess I'm sure that there's ongoing research, but they have not really found a particular genes that control OCD, right? Exactly. And that's that's turning out to be true for all the mental illnesses. There's no ever one gene that controls the ultimate expression of that. Uh, illness, it's probably, you know, 15, 30, 60 genes acting in concert with one another. And then of course, there's the influence of the environment. And you're absolutely right. Like the it's stress, sleep deprivation, uh, especially chronic stress in particular will really, really exacerbate uh, people's symptoms. I should say another thing that, and I don't know if you do this in your practice, but another part of the therapy that I got a little bit of exposure to that, but I've since really expanded on in my life is, um, Eastern philosophy, Buddhism, meditation, mindfulness, um, you know, what my therapist called metacognitive therapy, but really, uh, I think once you start to be you, once you start to do the behavioral therapy and you can start to engage more of the cognitive part, things like mindfulness can really be helpful because I've noticed that for me now in my own life, I mean, I will always have OCD, but it's almost like now, whether a thought, whether a distressing thought is irrational or rational doesn't really matter because you can use the same techniques to, um, to deal with them. Right. Like if I have a very rational fear of like, I mean, or just thinking about like, um, my book when, um, 
you know, if I read a, a negative review and, you know, if someone's been really hard on me, um, I could easily, you know, that thought makes me feel bad and I can start to like beat myself up about that and start to, you know, have self doubt and all that. And I can almost use the same technique of sort of saying, yeah, well, someone doesn't like you, you know, or maybe other people are not going to like your book and, you know, and, and just sit with that. And that's the exposure. And the more I do that, the more I get over, you know, that, that thought goes away. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, like, do you see a lot of these techniques being applied to rational fears in that way? I mean, is it, you know, can we use exposure therapy in kind of the same way? Yeah. I mean, I think what we generally encourage, okay. So I do love the metacognitive stuff and I do a lot of my practice or therapy nested within what we call uh, acceptance and commitment therapy, which, which is really, you know, couched within that Eastern tradition. Right. So the idea is we want people committing to their values and, and, and accepting the experience of anxiety that might come along with it. So I, I think where the rubber hits the road is anything worth doing that has meaning is going to come with a certain emotional price of admission. And to the extent that we're willing to experience that and willing to embrace the discomfort, that's going to be the gateway to living a life that is worth living uh, and has lots of uh, meaning in it. And I think often what I find myself saying to clients is that, you know, the often the facts aren't disputable, right? Like if we're having a thought or you see a negative review, like the facts aren't really up for debate, but the meaning of those things is always something that we have the possibility of playing around with. Right. And that, that, that's where our power lies. Right. So yeah, there's a, you see, you might see a review. It's a fact that it's there. We can't, we don't want to, you know, avoid and say, no, it's not there. And, or, you know, play it down. It's like, yeah, it's there. What do I want that to mean? Do I want that to mean that I never write another book? Like that would be, a, I think a, a really dysfunctional meaning we can impose upon that. Or do you, or do you, you know, there's a tendency to want to lash out and like say something back. Right. <laughs> and that's not going to, that's not healthy. So yeah, it's uh that, that, yeah, that acceptance is, is key to, to dealing with that. Yeah, it really feels like if you can put a gap in between the stimulus and the response, it gives you the chance to at least, you know, to make the kind of decision that you'd like to make that's aligned with your values, right? So again, instead of yeah. lashing out, it's like, how do I actually want to respond to that? If you remember from the book um, that Don Carmen, one of the people I, who I meet up with, you know, he's a psychologist and he has this great line where he says, um, you know, I don't get to write the script in life. I just get to respond. And I think that's, I mean, that's the part where like, to me, the, the exposure therapy meets the mindfulness in that when you, when you learn that a thought is just a thought that is inevitable that you can't control that's going to happen. And you can't, you know, again, you have no control over that, but then you, when you realize you do have control over how you respond to the thought, you know, that's where the power lies. Right. So, um, it's not about whether or not you get a negative review. It's about, again, creating that space to know how am I going to respond when that, when that happens. And again, to me, like whether it's a negative review or it's, I'm suddenly spinning in my head about, you know, um, having some disease or something or something that is, is clearly irrational, in both cases, if I respond to that thought by either, you know, accepting it or, 
or if I'm able to kind of, you know, recognize that it is irrational and let it go. I mean, that's, that's the key. Tolerating uncertainty is, is a really big challenge in OCD. Typically what's your journey been like with tolerating uncertainty? What have you learned along the way and how have you, how do you kind of deal with that day in, day out? Yeah. Well, that's, again, I think in some ways, like the, the key to, <laughs> the to happiness in life is, is exactly the question you just posed, which is how do you deal with uncertainty? You know, that's people I think that are generally well, you know, adjusted and content and, and not anxious tend to be people that are, that are really good at accepting the inevitability of uncertainty. And so, um, I mean, OCD, I, I mean, I think I've, I've been able to manage, my life, uh, in many ways really well because of what I had to go through with OCD, you know, because I got this giant painful lesson in the sort of the fact of an uncertainty and that the only way to, um, you know, to deal with it is to learn how to accept it and coexist with it. Um, when I get into things in my life, you know, big things about, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I'm still single. Um, and I, you know, I don't know, I don't have a like long-term permanent job. I don't have a guarantee of a book deal or any, I mean, I've very much of my life is not determined in terms of what's going to happen in the future. Um, but rather than running away from that, like a lot of people might do, I kind of have, have embraced, I mean, I've almost made that part of my my life's goal is to live with that uncertainty, to almost cultivate uncertainty. Right. And, you know, when it comes to things like relationships, like I'm not going to say I'll, I'll never meet someone or, but I'm, I'm okay with that possibility. You know, I'm not saying I'm not tying my happiness to some outcome in the future or some expectation. And I think that's another thing that we get into in the book is like how dangerous expectations are. Um, and, uh, and having living with uncertainty really is about letting go, I think of expectations. Absolutely. And I, I find myself having this discussion with, you know, friends and, and, uh, colleagues and, and clients alike all the time where it's not like only bad things come out of uncertainty, right? I mean, uh, you, you know, having a conversation like this, if someone had told me a year ago that you and I would be sitting down and having this conversation, I would have laughed, right? It's like, there's no way, but here we are having this chat or you never know when you're going to get an email that will change your life or you're going to meet the person that will be your new best friend. Or, you know, I can think of many other examples, but uncertainty is this wellspring right. from which life flows, like just in general. It's a great point. Like you could argue that adventure is a synonym of uncertainty. Right. And yet, and yet no one would ever think of those two things as being similar or the same. I wonder if it's control that it, where it hinges, right? So you, if you take on an adventure voluntarily, that's got a very different sort of vibe to it when it, as opposed to OCD, where it's sort of more foist upon you, right? Like the, there's a sense of uncontrol around it. So controllable uncertainty versus controllable uncertainty might be, might be different animals as far as the mind's concerned. I don't know. That's just off the top of my head. Yeah, no, I, I think I, I see what you're saying there. I think, I think it's a, it's a fun thing to think about. Um, cause you say like, I mean, my, you know, my book being a quest, right. You say, well, let's go on an, an adventure. Right. And, and it has this sort of positive, but 
adventure usually has some pretty negative things involved as well, right? Uh, so maybe we need to, maybe we need to recast uncertainty as adventure. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you look at the hero's journey trope, which I'm I'm sure you'd be more than familiar with, right? Like a real core ingredient of the of the hero's journey is the uh, is being tested, encountering enemies. And all kinds of bad things happening and also refusing to go on the adventure at first too, right? Right. Uh, only, only to later kind of come around and, and embark on the adventure. So I guess the, the, the true quest has everything in it. Well, what I like about the hero's journey, like if you think about the hero's journey as it applies or may not apply to, to my book, you know, so these are these baseball players that I wrote about were, were my heroes as a kid. And the book is really about you know, find getting, getting to know your heroes as an adult and, and who they really are. Because when you're a kid, they're just these larger than life. They might as well be comic book characters. And what I, what I really like about what I found is that these heroes, I found mostly to still be heroic, but not uh, for the reasons you might expect, right? It wasn't, um, you know, in the hero's journey, you know, it, it often is thought of like, oh, they, at the end of the journey, the the hero is the winner, right? But my book is not about baseball players winning the World Series in that sense or being winners, but it's about them being heroic because of kind of how they've lived their lives and the relationships they have with the people that are meaningful to them. And that being more important, that's what winning really is, right, is self-awareness and um, growth and compassion with the people you love. It's not about the trophies in your, on your mantle. And I think that's, that was an important distinction I wanted to make because generally we think of sports as winners and losers, champions and not champions. You know, we define these, these people by these hunks of metal, um, when really that's a very non-human way to look at it. Of the players that you met, was there one that struck you as being particularly sort of self-actualized in the way that you described? Yeah, the guy I was talking about earlier, Don Carmen, who was my my favorite as a kid, was just just blew me away with. I mean, this is a kid that grew up in rural Oklahoma with an abusive dad, with in poverty, with like basically like saw baseball as his only ticket out. You know, he had, he had. I mean, I you know, I talk about my own upbringing in the book and my own challenges with OCD and stuttering, but I'm a, you know, upper middle-class kid from the suburbs in, in Rhode Island. They went to private school. Like I recognize my own privilege. Someone like Don Carmen had none of that. And the fact that he's now not, I mean, putting aside the baseball part, you know, he, he reinvented himself after being a baseball player to get a bachelor's and a master's and working on a doctorate in psychology is uh, very, very impressive. And was there someone who you met who you felt maybe had struggled with the transition um, from pro to sort of everyday life? Yeah. Well, I had this hypothesis that the guys that were the biggest stars would be the, the have sort of the least well-adjusted. And I think the book bears that out um, in that, I mean, the guys that I, they wouldn't talk to me, wouldn't, they would not meet with me were generally those bigger stars like Carlton Fisk or Dwight Gooden or Vince Coleman. And um, I don't think that's a coincidence that the guys that were 
Uh, and so, you know, again, I, I hesitate like, without having actually met with someone and interview them and talk to them. I can't pass too much of a personal judgment. So those players that I didn't talk with in those chapters, in addition to kind of the, the comic relief of me going to these crazy extent to try to find <laughs> them, which is fun. Um, I tried to do reporting on, you know, basically do re- just old fashioned research on what had been written about them by people who had interviewed them. And I considered though in those cases, like it's, it's the weight of the evidence, you know, if it's been being written about for 20 years, most sports writers say that you're a dick, like probably you're a dick, but I, again, I don't know. Like I, I wasn't, I'd never actually met the person. So I just would try to report what had been reported. I had a lot of trouble reading the Carlton Fisk chapter uh, I hate watching people being embarrassed and I was just imagine, you know, that you had such a great lead up to it. I was just imagining you showing up to him at the bar. He's having a drink after golfing and then just some sort of cataclysmic kind of confrontation or something. Right. I, I had to read it like, you know, I had to take it page by page cause it was really painful. Uh, the way you had sort of led up to it, it was great. You, do you have, do you have a hard time watching the office for the same reason? Like, yes, exactly. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. yeah, I cannot. I cannot stand people embarrassing themselves in awkward ways. Also, people getting caught doing things like if someone's in a movie where someone's breaking into an office or something, and then they get busted. I I don't know why my physiology just reacts so strongly <laughs> to that stuff. Yeah, that's funny. No, it's well, and and I mean, imagine living it. Like I truly, yes, like I truly didn't know if I if he was there. Like I mean, again, a couple of times in the book, things could have gone really sideways. Like when I talking to Gary Templeton and asking about his illegitimate child. Right. I mean, that's, that could go, I mean, it, 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 I'm glad it didn't go badly, but it could have. What would you have said to Carlton Fisk? Had you come to face to face with him? Right. That's, I think I, in the a book, I, I say that I think my plan was just to talk about orchids. Right. Cause he ha- he has a real interest in that. Right. Right. And I don't, you know, and I'm a biologist and I, I knew that he loved orchids and he like, it's like his hobby you know, I, I may have even, I may not have even have like acknowledged that I knew who he was. I may have just been like, Hey, like, you know, I mean, I guess I would have probably given it away by bringing up orchids randomly, but I, I might've done something really unconventional there. I don't know. <laughs> um, that was the, that was the excitement of actually doing that for real, but also the, the terror of it. Well, okay. So this might be a bridge too far, but I want to kind of plug this into an exposure paradigm. So how nervous were you from the first meeting, the first player through to the end? Like, did you habituate across or did it really vary from kind of guy to guy, depending on their makeup and and temperament? Yeah, I definitely habituated. um, The first person, definitely more of that. It's weird. You know, I I don't think to, to most listeners who may not have followed baseball in the eighties, like these, some of these names mean nothing, but you know, to, to those of us who collected the cards and I mean, these guys, like they, they were, they were our, they were our, you know, comic book heroes. And there's something about anyone who's famous when you actually meet them, there's something about the three dimensionality of it, where it's like, Oh, like if you've only seen them on TV, but then seeing them like in person, it, it's a really, it, it, it kind of does kind of give you a, a bit of a, a jolt. Um, so that's kind of how I felt with the first guy by the end that was kind of gone. Um, and I think also because I had had generally like really 
positive experience with how the players reacted to me. I, I felt that, or I learned that the more I didn't give them much deference or didn't make them feel like they were special, the more they appreciated it. So if I, if I almost acted like we're on the same level, I'm just a guy, you're just a guy, like then they were more at ease. Yeah, it, it must be so strange to, you know, be in a position of, of fame or some sort of notoriety where you, you probably can't, you know, you probably get tired of people just wanting something from you yeah. or projecting something onto you. And to have someone treat you kind of normally as, as sort of mundane as that sounds is probably actually fairly extraordinary. Yeah, you know, I've been thinking in terms of my writing and what I want to do next in the future. Like I have, you know, I think every writer has 50 book ideas in their back pocket that they're not going to write most of them, but it's just fun to have ideas. Um, and I've been thinking about like, I, I do hope in my career that I'm able to write about both celebrities and non-celebrities because, you know, this was an example of writing about people that at least at some time were famous, even if they're not anymore, uh, which presents its own set of challenges and is interesting in certain ways. But then I think there's something also equally fascinating about writing about just everyday people, um, giving them the same depth of treatment that you would give a celebrity. I mean, of course, you have to be a good writer to get people to read about that. <laughs> you have to have, you know, in some ways, it's harder from a marketing perspective to drop people in to reading about just an average person. But it's to me potentially just as interesting to do that, and it's, to me it'll be a fun experiment to like go from writing about famous to not famous and see how they, they're, they're they're similar and different. Well, yeah, as, I mean, as a clinician, I mean, the the clients that I meet every single day are fascinating, uh, like the depth and the complexity, and and trying to figure it all out. I also think too that life is not nearly the meritocracy that we think that it is. So. People who are famous are, or, you know, for, or whatever word we want to use, they probably are for reasons that have sometimes little to do with actually being extraordinarily different from everyday people, right? So there's, I'm not sure if I'm making that point very clearly or not, but there's probably lots of super interesting folks that if the ball had rolled a different way in their life, we may know who they are, but we don't know who they are at this particular moment. Well, and I think like, actually, we we know that people are interested in the everyday person because look at like the success of re reality TV or, I mean, there's a certain like voyeurism that people have, I think with being fascinated by the everyday. Um, that's a different thing than why they're fascinated by a celebrity. Yeah. It's really neat to unpack that. I mean, if you look at YouTube, the amount of talent that is on YouTube, but that is not, you know, I look at guys who are playing, you know, guitar in their basement with all this crazy gear and whatnot extremely talented, but like literally no one's heard of them yeah. and probably yeah. no one will ever hear of them. Well, I'm always amazed. Like I want to know the, how the, all these people on YouTube apparently have like 30 hour days because I'm like, how do you have the time to like, I mean, some of the stuff that people put on there, like, you know, here's me fixing my kitchen faucet. Like, I mean, I mean, it's great that they they want to help people, but <laughs> that's a lot of spare time to like be making YouTube videos of just things you're doing around the house. Exactly. One dynamic I wanted to ask you about, and I like to ask anybody about this, who, who does anything sort of that's public facing is how do you balance doing right by yourself and your creative values versus managing the fact that you're, you know, 
perhaps trying to make at least in part a living off of this have to be attuned to market forces, have to be attuned to social media, stuff like that, which can really kind of corrupt uh, sort of the purity of these kind of undertakings. Right. So Brad, how do you see the balance playing out between these two things? Yeah, that's a good question. And I am someone that refuses generally to compromise very much on that where like I want to do what I want to do creatively. And I mean, that's part of why my book was so hard to get published. So I've, it's been, I've talked about this and it's been written about a little bit where my book got rejected 38 times um, by publishers and it was a long, you know, arduous path to publication. Um, And so, and in that process, I was being told like, you know, basically a lot of people saying, Oh, take take yourself out of the story. They wanted me to write a different type of book. And I refused to do that. At potentially at my own financial peril. Um, but I, I just could not um, sacrifice the, the vision that I had for, I mean, I had a very clear idea with this book of what I wanted it to be. And I wasn't willing to, to compromise that. So uh, it's, I, I, always, and I always felt like if I get a chance to do it, it's going to be good enough that it will be financially successful. So um I, I don't, I would say I never really, I'm a, I never choose my ideas, my, my story ideas based on how marketable it's going to be, um, or at least very little thought about that. Uh, but when I go and then do an idea, I realize it's really on me to do everything I possibly can to promote it. So I, you know, busted my ass on the hustle and the promotion of this book in order to, to make sure that it got out there. Um, but, you know, I mean, really if someone has said to me, Hey, here's a hundred thousand dollars to write a sequel, I would say no, even though I could definitely use a hundred thousand dollars. Um, so, and you know, there are writers that, that are much more, you know, they're motivated more by getting the big book deal and it's about more about the money. Um, I also have the, you know, the, um, I'm in the position I've chosen to, you know, again, be single. I don't have to support kids. I mean, I get like, there's a many different, uh, reasons why people need to prioritize money in certain situations. Um, so yeah, I, I, I hope that my, I guess my, what I bank on is that my, um, my passions will align enough with what's financially marketable to, to, to be able to make a living, even if I, I mean, I don't really care about being rich or anything, but was, I'd love to make a living off of it. Um, and then hoping, hopefully that my, my, my talent, my writing is good enough, irrespective of the subject matter that I can do that. Also 38 times. That's unbelievable because, you know, it's funny without knowing the backstory and just reading the book and really enjoying it, it would never have occurred to me that anyone would, you know, would look at it and be like, no, I'm not going to publish that. But, and you know, even more frustrating was when they would say no, they'd be like, oh my God, that's a great idea. You're a great writer, but oh no, because you don't have a hundred thousand Instagram followers. No one knows who you are. I mean, it's a really cutthroat business model. It's like, you know, if we, if we don't think you can sell X number of books in six weeks, forget about it. Um, you know, and in publishing, there's like four, five now four companies that control the entire market in terms of 
being able to give a, a book deal big enough to make a living off of. I've done a couple of books myself more in the academic realm, and I'm quite sure I made approximately $0 off of them if, if I factor in my actual time and hourly rate and all that, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, they're, they're nice feathers in your cap to be sure. Uh, and, and very different market than, than sort of something more in a popular realm like yourself. Uh, but it sounds like you almost had to go through your own hero's journey just to get it to the start line and, and out the door ultimately. Yeah, uh, no, it really, it's, um, I mean, I, for those, the, the trip took place in 2015, the book came out in 2020 for those four or five years there, I was teaching part-time as an adjunct professor, you know, making $30,000 living in the San Francisco Bay area, um, renting a room in a house, just, I mean, just simply betting on myself that I could do this, um, and that it would work. And, you know, I mean, so and my life hasn't changed. I mean, I'm still renting a room in a house in the Bay area, <laughs> making a little bit more money, but it's not like I've suddenly my life has changed that much because the book's, you know, done well. Brad, how hard was it to keep the faith through that four or five years? I, I'm imagining there must've been some pretty dark moments in, in there where you're like, oh, you know what, maybe, maybe they're right. This isn't going to happen. Or, or was your faith sort of unshakable with respect to, nope, if I just get this in front of the right person, this is a great idea. It's going to happen. I think my faith was pretty strong. I think, you know, it's interesting you, you asked that question because maybe again, this is one of those sort of nice side effects of OCD. It's like, I know what it feels like. I was never suicidal, but I, I know, I remember being at a place with my OCD where I truly didn't know if I would ever feel like myself again. Like I have a certain humor and a certain like, like enjoyment in my life. And I remember when I was at my worst with OCD and I saw my mom and she could just tell from looking at me that like, she's like the light in your eyes is gone. And I remember this, like being in this, in this deer in the headlights state. And I remember being terrified that I would never get out of that. So I think like going through that, um, when it comes to like my life circumstances, since that, uh, it's never as bad, <laughs> you know, it's like, so yeah, like I was, it sucked. I was scared. I wouldn't get published, but I was like, okay, if it doesn't get published, like it's not that, <laughs> you know? And so I think like, that's like, you know, when you come out of the, the trauma of these experiences, like there is something to be said for having gone through that. Yeah. There's a real resilience that you can come out with on the other side. And not God, I'm so sick of talking about COVID, but I actually do think a lot of my clients were the best prepared of anyone to going into COVID because they already had exposure to all of the hot buttons that COVID has, has brought to bear. It's funny. So I remember when I, I did group therapy after my individual therapy and I was in this group support group for OCD. And this is just the way OCD works, where we had this woman in our group who was had all these OCD fears about like, I mean, one of them was like, she thought if she looked at an airplane, it would explode. So she had to go to like the airport observation deck and stare at airplanes all day. Um, you know, or, you know, really far out irrational things, but then she, well, I remember she ended up getting cancer. And so the next time we saw her after her diagnosis, we we're like, how are you doing? She's like, Oh, I'm fine. <laughs> you know, it's like, she actually got cancer and it was like, no sweat. But, you know, she was terrified she was going to blow up an airplane by looking at it. I mean, that's just, 
I think people with OCD tend to like deal with real, real stuff really well. I totally agree. I, I, I totally agree. Brad, can you just, you know, for the, for the person who's listening, who doesn't have OCD and who can't understand why someone couldn't just stop doing the compulsions, can you maybe give a window into what that experience is like where you know it's irrational and yet it's irresistible to or, or feels irresistible to engage in a particular behavior? Can you help the person like uh, someone understand that experience psychologically? Yeah. I mean, I remember like when my therapist, um, my girlfriend at the time came in, she didn't have OCD and, you know, he it was like something that he had obviously said before, but he's like said to her, if you want to know what it feels like for him, just think about standing on the edge of a cliff and looking down or think about um, being dropped into a pit of snakes. Like it's just anxiety, right? So whatever, whatever sort of touchstone experience someone associates with extreme anxiety, that's, that's how it feels. Um, And so I think when you say that people are like, okay, well that, I know that that sucks. Um, Or, you know, I remember another analogy that I've used is it just feels like a really, a uh, bad itch, you know, and, you know, when you have that terrible itch, like, how do you not scratch it? <laughs> yeah. It's like ir- irresistible. There's an exercise I often do with the family members of clients where I'll have them write on my whiteboard, say their loved one's name is Joe. Like I hope Joe dies of leukemia tomorrow or something. And even people with OCD will really, really hesitate to do it. They do not want to do it. They have, they have got that thought action fusion where if I write that down, right. somehow it makes it real. And we talk about, right. hey, that, those are just molecules of ink configured in certain shapes. How could that possibly cause your loved one to get cancer? And yet people don't want to do it. So that's, that's sometimes a little window into people of that it can be irrational, but yet be emotionally gripping at the same time. Well, I think one of the hardest things from a clinician's perspective to treat is when you get into like the scrupulosity where people that are terrified of being Satan worshipers or, you know, and you ask them in the exposure therapy to say something like, I'm, I'm Satan's child. I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a agent of Satan. And it's like, because religion is based on faith, which is not falsifiable. You're, you know, you're asking, you're, you're asking to do an exposure that in fact, nobody can say for sure is, you know, it, it's it's not a, not a matter of 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 science or faith. I mean, uh, or evidence. So it's like when you ask them to do an exposure on, along those lines, it's even more terrifying because of their religious beliefs. Absolutely, a, a a colleague of mine. She is starting a project where she's really interfacing with a lot of faith based groups to help educate, uh, like priests, for instance, on scrupulosity. And, you know, people come to confession saying, hey, I'm having thoughts of X, Y, or Z and, you know, helping them to recognize or redirect the person to, hey, this is OCD. This is not a crisis of faith. This is, this is a, a mental illness that, you know, for which there's really viable treatments. But I think, I bet it gets missed quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Right. No, it's, uh, yeah, totally. When I was reading the book, I had a lot of empathy for you around, you know, getting in contact with these guys and, and, and booking them. As the podcast host, I basically do all my own booking. I'm tracking people down, wading through, you know, armies of publicists and, and you know, guests being really guarding their time and understandably so. I mean, I always try and remember when I'm reaching out, I'm one of like a thousand people that want to spend a, a, an hour of this person's precious time 
uh, with them. What was your process like for tracking down uh, these baseball players? And again, I think you mentioned generally having a good reception, but how much imposter syndrome were you contending with on your end? Like what was your internal experience, even if the other person wouldn't have known? What was it like for you to sort of put yourself out there and say, hey, can, you, can I spend a bit of time with you? Yeah, I think with the imposter syndrome, like I've learned that, and this is also through teaching, you know, I teach and um, one of the best, I think best lessons that I can give about imposter syndrome is basically um, just being, being willing to, to embarrass yourself, <laughs> like, or, you know, basically like accepting that, you know, yeah, you you may upset somebody or you may be perceived as an imposter or um, like I'll make, you know, when I, when it comes to dealing with anxiety, like with teaching, for example, I'll, I'll just openly make fun of myself or um, embarrass myself almost sometimes. I mean, that's kind of like a form of exposure therapy, you know, it's like, you're okay. I'm going to embarrass myself intentionally. And then, it, it takes the, the fangs out of, out of the experience. Um, when it came to contacting these baseball players, a lot of it was, you know, getting a phone number from public records and calling a landline and basically just saying, you know what, like, I'm going to, I, if, if I'm going to just say what I think the best thing I can say here, I'm going to make my pitch. And if they think I'm a crazy stalker fan, then that's fine. <laughs> you know, like that's, um, so I think like the more you practice in a way, embarrassing and laughing at yourself, the easier those things get. Um, and, you know, and I, of course I go to some extremes in the book with only one of the players was still famous enough to have a publicist. And that was Carlton Fisk and, you know, his publicist blew me off. And so I go through this whole, you know, charade you were talking about earlier about how it was painful to read it where I'm acting like a home millionaire, a home buyer to try to find him in a golf course. And then I, you know, I go and I see him in New York and I give him my autograph and I, you know, these really like, uh, audacious things that I did. Um, but I guess like some of that is just, uh, uh, yeah, just, uh, being willing to laugh at yourself, embarrass yourself, not take yourself so seriously, really. Like, I think that's, a lot of that. Yeah, this is great for any clients listening with uh, social anxiety disorder, right? This is exactly the kind of exposures that we do where we'll phone up a, a bookstore, we'll ask for a, a title that does not exist. We've just made it up, and but we'll insist that it's there. There's a uh, store down the street called Mountain Equipment Co-op. We often go in there and just ask ridiculous questions about kayaks and do you have one that flies? And, you know, like, but ask it with a straight face, you know, like just ask these sort of like absurd questions. And it, it's amazing. People, they just, they take it seriously. Like, well, actually, no, we don't have any that do that. But, you know, we, it's, it's amazing kind of what you can get away with in a sense. Yeah. Um, I had a friend recently who was, had, has this big meeting that she's about to have and with all these big wigs. And she's like, oh, you know, I'm just so terrified. Like, I feel, uh, you know, I, I, they're going to know that I'm, I'm just faking it the whole time. And I was like, remember when you start to experience that, remember like everyone is faking it all the time. <laughs> Everyone's faking it. You know, we're faking it. You and I are faking it right now to some extent. I mean, we're all, we're all just putting on a mask to some extent and it, we're projecting a part of ourselves. And I think that's the more you realize that everyone is 
kind of doing the same thing, the, the less it matters what you do. No, absolutely. You know, like you say, you and I are both operating from platforms of persona at the moment, right? Just to, you know, to make the interaction go smoothly and have a good conversation. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not going to let you know what my GI track is up to or God, I had this thought like, <laughs> right? Like it's, yeah. But, you know, we do, you know, again, I think one of the real strengths of the book is that it there the, is the vulnerability. So I think when people are too much persona, it's off-putting. Yeah. But, you know, when people can be authentic, I think it can really foster connection and likability. Not that that should be the only goal, but I think it's just a natural consequence. Yeah, I think wanted to include myself to the extent that it was going to be a way for the reader to emotionally engage with the material. And I think being vulnerable generally is uh, an attractive quality for anybody because it's really, I mean, I think a synonym for vul you know vulnerability is honesty <clears throat> and i think people generally appreciate honesty absolutely and it's funny cuz vulnerability is one of the things that we're afraid of most right like most of my clients i'm really you know we're really trying to get to the start line of vulnerability that's the thing that people are afraid of most but what i'm also what i'm tr always trying to say is like you're going to be more likable you know you're going to have a better chance of making that good impression if you're, if you're vulnerable, uh, in the book, you seem to make pretty good connections with a few of the players. Like they sort of took you into their home for, and families yeah. really ultimately for sort of, uh, you know, short, but extended periods of time. What were the active ingredients that went into clicking with those guys? As far as you could tell? Well, part of it was just being a little bit bold, you know, again, back to the idea of being willing to, I mean, really, you know, along with along the lines of embarrassing yourself and all that it's really about taking risks right i mean that's and that's what we're talking about with dealing with uncertainty and ocd it's all about taking risks and um accepting risk and um so i think some of those things it was just me saying hey you know can i can i uh meet with you at your house and meet your wife you know, they may not have offered that, but I, you know, sometimes it's just about asking. Right. Right. Um, and then I think in terms of their perception of me, I, I think probably it helped that I was not a famous writer <laughs> or a famous sports writer. If, you know, if Bob Costas was doing this book, he would come with all kinds of baggage about being Bob Costas. Right. And I think in a way, my anonymity was, was an asset. Um, probably because they didn't feel intimidated or, or, you know, they probably were very disarmed with me, but I also was very conscious about asking the kinds of questions that I asked, which was not getting bogged down in the details of their baseball careers, but instead asking, um, big questions about, you know, tell me about your dad, tell me about your son, tell me about, you know, these big relationship kind of things that allowed them to, I think a lot of times start talking and before they realized that things were coming up, you know, emotionally that they didn't expect. Yeah. Listening is very seductive, right? Like just being listened to is, is a very pleasurable experience and, and having someone really interested in you uh, is, is a very seductive experience. And I don't mean in a sexual way, but I mean, just like in, in yeah. an interpersonal way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, you're, you're a therapist. I mean, that's, <laughs> I mean, you're, you're a professional listener in a lot of ways, right? 
endeavor to be for <laughs> for sure for sure are, are there any of these guys that you're still in contact with or have kept kept up a thread of communication with or yeah and that, i'm really proud of that that like just was it two days ago i was on the mlb network doing an interview and i sent the clip to rance mullenix one of the players that was uh in the pack and you know we were texting about it and um I, there was just an article in uh, the St. Louis Cardinals magazine. I sent it to Gary Templeton and, you know, texted with him about it. So, uh, yeah, you know, I really, it's kind of nice to have some of those connections still going. Yeah. Rance Mullenix in particular seemed like, I mean, the, a lot of them seem like really nice guys, but, or maybe it just resonated for me being a Canadian uh, watching the Blue Jays and certainly seeing uh, Rance on TV all the time. He seemed like just a particularly nice guy and, and, and down to earth. Was that your impression as well? Yeah. And I think like, you know, actually I got really lucky with the, just the, the, the sequence, the chronology of the players as I met with them and who they ended up being, how they, what they ended up being like, because, Rance being the first in the book kind of sets this nice kind of like um, foil or this sort of control for what was going to happen later because he was so steady and down to earth. You know, it was like kind of this nice way to start out. And then you get into some of the guys later and you get some really, you know, different adventures and personalities. And uh, I like the way that, I mean, where I think Rance just by chance being first was the best place for him to appear. No, it definitely seemed like you lucked out. It was a nice soft landing, if I can put it that way, uh, to sort of get some wind in your sails and get some momentum going for meeting with the rest of the guys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think in the book, you said that Don Carmen was your, was sort of one of your heroes growing up. Is that correct? Yeah. He was my favorite player as a kid. Yeah. So it must be, again, pretty surreal. I, I mean, I've had this experience on the podcast talking with a, a couple of the guests where uh, one of them was Dr. Joseph Ledoux. I look back at my master's thesis from, I think, 2001, and I had cited him so many times and then had this, you know, uh, really meaningful conversation, you know, back in, I think it was November. I was like, did that just happen? Like, that was, yeah. <laughs> that was really weird, uh, but like in the best possible way. Did you have that kind of an experience uh, throughout the journey? Yeah. And that, I mean, that, that chapter was my favorite. And again, you couldn't, you couldn't script a, a, a better outcome for sort of who Don Carmen ended up being as a person. Um, and I, you know, talking that chapter about the, just the similarities that I, that I had with him and sort of ways that I identified with him that were just kind of surreal because I never really knew why he was my favorite player. I mean, other than the fact that I always liked the underdogs. And so I was not someone that liked, or, you know, my, my favorite players were not the guys that were the big stars. Um, and, you know, that's kind of a theme that's borne out in the book is that the guys that maybe were not the biggest baseball stars ultimately probably are the happiest in their lives. Yeah. that That's really interesting. Did you think there was a bit of fate involved when you opened up that pack and you saw Don Carmen in there? <laughs> well, to be fair, I, I put this in a footnote. I actually opened up several packs and uh, I didn't mix cards between packs, but I, you know, if I opened just one and like four of the guys were dead or something, I, you know, I, I didn't want to have that situation. So I, uh, him being in the pack that I chose was that definitely a reason why I chose to to focus on that pack, but also all the players, but one were still alive and they were all uh, pretty spread out in the country. 
Okay, so there were some logistics involved. Like you, you just sort yeah. of practically speaking had to have a workable set of guys to work through. Right, right. And that's, yeah, exactly. There's definitely, you know, there has to be some pragmatism, I think, in, in approaching these things. Oh, exactly. It's probably like doing TV or whatnot. You have to curate certain moments to really kind of take a bit of creative, right. li- creative license to make it all work. Yeah, yeah. Just getting back to the creative piece for a second and, uh, you know, just taking a bit of a flyer here. Have you read the book, uh, war of art by Steven Pressfield? I have not. No, it's a book. It's, it's a book that I read not too long ago and it's a series of short little meditations on, uh, on creativity and writing in particular. And, uh, I think he wrote beggar Vance, uh, and, and some other things I can't recall at the moment, but it's just an amazing book. And given the, your stance towards creativity, I think you'd really resonate with his message. He, he very much says that people that write for the market are hacks. Like that's very much his (laughs) sort of take on it. And he has his beautiful notion of resistance, right? Where, where, wherever resistance is in your life, that's where the meaning is. And that's where you have to lean into. Right. Uh, And it's like a compass that you can always use. And I think relative to the conversation that we've been having today, that's a really resonant idea. And that's, that's very much true of, of OCD, right? It's like whatever you're the most afraid of, that's exactly where you need to go. Right. No, I, I, I think I would definitely enjoy that, that book. Yeah, he also has this idea of thinking hierarchically versus territorially where, you know, the artist should really find a territory to reside in where you have control and you can really sort of be the uh, uh, the keeper of that domain versus when you start getting hierarchical, you start making comparisons to other people. And then it really sort of that, you know, comparison is the thief of joy, that whole idea. So anyway, it's, it's just a, it's a really nice meditation on creativity, uh, how resistance can trip up creativity and where, where a lot of those bear traps are with respect to impeding the creative process. No, that sounds, yeah, I'll definitely check that out. Brad. So as far as you can tell, what's going to be the lasting legacy of this book for you, uh, personally and or emotionally? Hmm. You know, that's, I've probably done 200 interviews and that's the first time I've ever been asked that question, which is really, really impressive. Um, that the completely different kind of question like that, um, the legacy of, I mean, the book, you know, it's funny. You got, so my dad, um, who's in the book, I talk about my dad and my relationship with him and, you know, fathers and sons is kind of a big theme in the book. And he, he said to me recently on the phone, uh, he's now 72 and, you know, thinking about his own life and mortality and all that. And he said something like, you know, I really am envious that with your book, like you now have a legacy, like, you know, hundreds of years from now, your book could still be out there in the world on a shelf, which was you know, a nice thought and a nice compliment. But I honestly, like, don't care at all about that part of it. You know, like to me, like legacy is so overrated and back to my belief very much in living in the present and impermanence. And I really look at like stuff like that as like, and it's helpful with my OCD to almost remind myself of my own insignificance. Because I think when you, when you do like there's, there's a certain, I don't know if you've encountered this in your therapy, in your work with your clients, but there's a certain self-absorption to self-improvement that can become very counterproductive. Um, and I think there's a, you know, there's a line you can go over where you become so in your own head with sort of this sort of self focus that it's actually for me really helpful and, and cathartic to actively remind myself of how I don't matter, (laughs) you know? 
Um, and it, it takes a lot of the pressure off for me. So in terms of legacy of the book, like I don't really see that in any way as being meaningful for me, like more of my personal emotional legacy of the book. I, I, I feel very like it was a, a real kind of affirmation that I, that I was right about believing in myself, you know, that it's, I do take great satisfaction in all those people that are supposedly the experts that told me no one cares about your story or, you know, you're not a celebrity and you're not, your book's not going to work, you know, like to see a book. I mean, really the, the irony is that the, the, a book about underdogs became an underdog itself because I remember when I saw the LA times bestseller list one week and it's like Michelle Obama and, you know, all these people and, and then my name right next to her from, you know, the university of Nebraska press with a, $2,000 advance and no agent to be on that list. It was like, wow, like I actually, you know, proved what I always believed. So that I think I, I will always, um, you know, no matter, again, no matter what I write from here, that'll always be like a special thing, that first book and, um, you know, sort of proving that. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And that must put a lot of wind in your sails for other ideas that you may have, right? Where you're like, hey, if I was onto the right track with this idea, other, th you know, I can trust my barometer for what's going to be a good idea. Again, not from a, from a, you know, from a pop perspective, but like, you know, my core interests are going to align with what will resonate with maybe a lot of other people as well. Yeah, I think um, that's also a slippery slope. And we were talking about, about um, expectations, right. It's like, I could easily go down the road of, well, now my second book has to be better than my first. And so I'm actively working on myself with that and, and framing it as like, it doesn't matter if my second book doesn't do as well. Like it doesn't matter. You know, it, it, I mean, I mean, it matters to the extent that you want to make a living and all that, but um, not getting caught up in, in, that kind of thinking about always having to, you know, be better and better and better. Um, so, yeah. And I think that, um, it does, uh, it gives me some, some confidence in developing my voice, which I think as a writer is very important, especially this kind of writing where, um, I think voice is one of those sort of intangible qualities that, that successful writers need to find and it needs to be something that readers really relate to and, and, and are attracted to. And so um, I think, you know, from what I've been told, one of the strengths of my book is the voice is that you feel um, like you are kind of, you, you know, me and you're, you're having a conversation with me and, you feel like you're in the company of somebody who you would like to hang out with. And if I can cultivate that voice, regardless of what the content of the book is, then, then I know that I've, that I'm doing my job. It's kind of like, you know, with OCD, it doesn't really matter what the content of the thought is. It's, it's all just different variations on the same theme, right? You know, it's, um, it's all the same. It's just any different forms of anxiety. I hope this is a compliment, uh, but I think your voice to me is like a slightly more self-deprecating Michael Lewis. 
<laughs> that's funny. Yeah, no, that's very much a compliment. And yeah, Michael Lewis, I mean, he's kind of one of the, the, you know, uh, leaders in this type of writing, but I've noticed with his writing that he's, he's gotten more and more, um, kind of in the background of his books. And this is something that just interesting from the, the craft of, of writing, I think it's become less and less, and this is hard, part of why it was hard to, to get a book deal. Like it's become less and less common for the writer to be in the story. Mm-hmm. Unless it's like you're just writing a straight up memoir or something. Um, and I, and I've noticed like there's like, you know, much more common now is sort of the Malcolm Gladwell, like, you know, you're, you're the expert writer, but you're, you're a detached narrator. And right. I, and I, I realized in writing this book that that's no, that's the style that I like is being in the story. Um, but it's just not something that's done very much. So it'll be interesting to see the next time around, like, you know, how, when I pitch an idea, how that gets received or if that becomes more common again. To my taste, uh, it's a really good fit for your, for your style. It's, it, I really, really like it. I think the most extreme permutation of this I've seen is in fiction. If uh, I don't know if you've read Stephen King's The Dark Tower series, no, where he he's he puts himself in the series as a character, like so. Oh wow. you know, Stephen King in the in the third person kind of thing. It's it's pretty wow. wacky. It's pretty wacky, but like most of Stephen King, it kind of works out in some weird way. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, nice. <laughs> I'm rereading the uh, the stand. I read it back in uh, in high school, but I'm rereading the stand now. But this viral apocalypse that he wrote, it's like this 1,200 page book, and uh, it's interesting to go, to go through it now in the context of COVID. Right, right, right. <laughs> so, uh, Brad, I'm not sure if how many uh, cats you want to let out of the bag or not, but what are you up to these days? What's next for you? Yeah, no, I, I don't have any um, cats scratching in the bag right now because mostly because. I mean, I have a lot of ideas, but the kind of reporting and writing that I did in the wax pack that I like to do, we just, you just can't do it right now. Um, so until we have a better idea of like when that can happen again, I'm not trying to, you know, do the next project, but, um, I have, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of choosing between a few different ideas. A lot of them are, are more in, in science, which is, you know, my professional background uh, with or my expertise and looking at um, uh, islands. I, I, a lot of my career has been studying the animals and plants that live on islands. And so kind of some ideas around traveling to different islands and the things that have evolved there and writing about the, the scientists that, that, that study those things. And I think, I mean, I realized after the fact that my time working at a travel magazine many, many years ago actually helped out a lot with this book because in a way the, the wax pack is every bit a travel book, right? I mean, it's right. kind of travel writing. I'm, I'm on the move, I'm in the car, I'm going to new places. And I think that that type of um, writing where travel is, is part of the story is something I really want to do more of. Right on the, uh, what are those islands that are off Santa Barbara? The Channel Islands. So I, I had the opportunity to spend quite a bit of time in Santa Barbara and everyone kept saying, you have to go check them out. And unfortunately I never did. It's one of my big regrets from my, uh, from my stint out there. No, man. Well, I actually teach a class specifically on the islands of California and we do a field trip out there and there's like this, this, uh, native endemic species of Island Fox. It's like the size of a house cat. 
that's so tame it just comes right up to you it's a really it is a cool place to to visit very cool uh brad i want to give you the last word is, is there anything that you want to leave the audience with before we uh sign off together no you know i just i really i really enjoy the conversation because um you know as i said i've done a lot of interviews but an interview where i can really go in the weeds with somebody about the ocd and and i mean it's much more enjoyable for me to talk about those things and 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 some of the deeper themes in the book. And um, to me, you know, dealing with the adversity of OCD and, and these different anxiety disorders is something that's so important. And, and, um, and I think the more people can just talk openly about this stuff, the, the better we all are. So thank you for for probing and, uh, and doing the work you do and, um, you know, getting into all these different topics. Oh, no, you're very welcome. I really enjoyed the conversation and, you know, you weave the OCD into the book really nicely and it makes even more sense after having chat chatted with you now about it. And what, what I'm getting out of it is that there's some really big themes that relate to both the baseball and your personal journey. And it's all sort of, sort of knit together very nicely within the context of the book. So again, the book is called The Wax Pack. I have it right here and uh, it's really great. I recommend that uh, people pick it up. Yeah, Brad, thanks so much for your, spending this time with me. I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, let's stay in touch. And I'd love to chat with you down the road and around your next project. All right, I appreciate it. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.